0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Greetings, New Books Network listeners. This is a podcast covering the history of science and technology. We are here today with the author of American Independent Inventors in an Era of Corporate R and D, Dr. Eric S. Hinz, and your NBN host, Nathan Moore. Dr. Eric S. Hinz is a historian with the Lamelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. The Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. He also develops exhibitions for the public and assists in the collection of historically significant artifacts and documents. Dr. Hinz, how has the recent release of this your book, this past August, been?
0: Um, Nathan, it's been great first. I should just say thank you for having me um, here for the interview on New Books Network. It's great. Um, uh, it's really been wonderful um, to have opportunities like this to talk about the research. Uh, it's kind of a long Odyssey uh, working on this project. It took me about uh, 10 or 11 years to put the book together, uh, 15 if you count the work spent uh, done on the dissertation on which the book is based. so, Uh, You know, it's been really satisfying after all these years to see the um, ideas uh, in between two covers uh, and to be able to talk to folks like you and receive uh, really nice notes of congratulations from friends and family and colleagues. It's been really, really cool.
1: That's really good to hear. I'm glad that it's been a nice experience. Um, And I'm hoping that that continues into the future. Uh, You write early on in uh, your book that Ruth Shorts Cowan, was and remains a patient advisor and mentor. Uh, can you further describe the ways your graduate advisor mentored the development of your research um, from beginning to end at Penn? Uh, it must have really been some influence on you, and her genius study, More Work for Mother, really shows the significance of her impact on the field.
0: Absolutely, and I, I appreciate that question. Um, so, you know, I definitely uh, give a shout out to Ruth uh, in the acknowledgements. Um, You know, I owe a lot to Ruth Cowan. Um, She took a chance on me. Um, History is a second career for me. I'm a career changer. So um, out of um, my undergraduate degree, I studied engineering, and I was like a software coder and database uh, person out in Silicon Valley. And I'd kind of become disillusioned with that career, and I was looking towards a career in teaching and going into graduate school. And she took a chance on me. I had a great experience at University of Pennsylvania, where she was my main advisor, And, um, you know, like many advisors, she was just amazing uh, in terms of opening doors to me and for me and introducing me to the people that would be in a position to help with the research underlying the book. So, you know, we would be at like the SHOT meeting, Society for the History of Technology, and she would say, oh, Eric, come over here. I want to introduce you to Paul Israel. And of course, Paul Israel is like the distinguished Edison biographer and um, the executive director of the Edison Papers Project at Rutgers. Or she'd say, Eric, I need you to meet Arthur Malala. Okay, Art is like the director of the Lemelson Center at the National Museum of American History. And so this is the guy that like hired me, <laughs> right? And, and at, the, at, the, at, the, at the museum, you know, that this many of the, um, the archival papers uh, of inventors, you know, whose stories are featured in the book. Uh, you know, I sort of learned about those through Art Malala, you know, who I met through Ruth. So she was just great in that way, helping me identify people and places uh, that would be in a position to help me with my research. But the last thing I want to say, and this is, this is how I, I really feel about Ruth in the end, is that, um, you know, she really modeled how to balance uh, being a distinguished scholar uh, with devotion to her family. Um, you know, not only is she, you know, a hall of famer in our discipline, but like, You know, she's just a great, um, great wife, great mother. And, uh, you know, I had two little boys, uh, my wife and I had two little boys in graduate school. So I was sort of like learning how to be a dad uh, while I was working on this project. And like every meeting I ever had with her, it never began with how's the dissertation going? It was always how's Emma? How are your sons? And just like that sort of gentleness and care for me as a person uh, beyond just caring for me as like one of her advisees, like always stuck with me, and I just I just love Ruth to death.
1: Awesome. Well, you definitely put a lot of that care into your writing for sure. Um, and the focus here on independent inventors conjures up many different individuals. Uh, but thinking about the examples of people that you mentioned like Samuel Cole, Samuel Morris, Thomas Edison, um, and Alexander Graham Bell in the nineteenth century, what was it that made the 20th century so different? Was it just the influence of R&D? Um, and did your research method, methods change based on what you've seen?
0: Yeah, Great question, Nathan. Um, so, right. So the book uh, really focuses on this period 1890 to about 1950. So this is like the generation or two after what you might call like the heroic era of invention, right? So if you go a little earlier after the Civil War, Um, you know, that's your Edison, Bell, Morse, Colt uh, era. So what makes this era different? Uh, So going back to the 19th century, when you have the, you know, the Edisons and the Bells, all inventors were independents. Um, And that's just how it was. You had an invention um, and you would either develop a company to commercialize it like Colt's revolver or Edison's light bulbs or whatever. But in the 20th century, things change. corporate R&D emerges, uh, and this is inspired in part by Edison and Menlo Park, right, his kind of um, more systematic approach to invention uh, in his Menlo Park laboratory. So when um, corporate R&D comes along uh, and later you get things like the university professor as an inventor, you get, you know, contract research with like Battelle and places like that, there are more different ways to be an inventor in the 20th century. And so it's, you know, so one of the big questions in my book is just looking at that change. Conditions change, right? Now corporations are here. What does that mean for the traditional independent inventor uh, who carries over from the 19th century into this era where it's not just other individuals I'm competing with, right? We remember like Edison versus Tesla and things like that. Now it's individuals versus massive corporations. So it's a different ballgame when someone like Philo Farnsworth Uh, who's the television inventor is going against RCA. So it's those kinds of, um, you know, circumstances that I was interested in understanding, you know, what it meant to be an independent in an era of corporate R&D. And in terms of your um, question about research methods, um, you know, it wasn't, I I wanted to be sure I wasn't just looking at the inventor's side of the story. Of course, the primary sources I use uh, are you know, the archival papers and memoirs of individual inventors, but I also wanted to look at the corporate side. So I, I also used the papers of DuPont, you know, big companies like DuPont and GE, and also smaller firms like the Schaefer Pen Company and other small firms to kind of understand how those relationships went uh, and those rivalries went from both sides of the equation.
1: And for those of us who want more incentive to read your book, Uh, Who is the inventor that you think best sums up what everything is about?
0: Uh, (laughs) That's a tough one. Um, You know, I probably, I probably, you know, I I have, the the book is a series of short vignettes and um, episodes, and I probably look at 25, 30, 40 inventors in the book. Um, so it's hard to pick just one, but I think if I had to pick one, it's probably, uh, the inventor who got me started on all of this research in the first place. And it's a gentleman named, uh, Samuel Rubin. So Samuel Rubin is born in 1900, uh, grows up in New York city. Uh, he has a high school education, uh, but he gets attached to this Columbia physics professor named Bergen Davis. He kind of becomes a lab assistant, like Bergen Davis sends him home with physics books. He's kind of like an autodidact. And uh, Davis basically sets uh, Ruben up with a backer and, you know, realizes Rubin's potential to be an inventor. And um, he kind of becomes this uh, independent inventor working in a small space in New York City. Um, Ruben is really good at electrochemistry, right? So capacitors, condensers, batteries, things like this. And he starts to invent Um, little devices like this that are kind of like the components of other things like toasters and washing machines. And he licenses them to um, the PR Mallory Company, which is based out of Indianapolis. Um, And he he forges this long-term relationship with the PR Mallory Company. I, I suspect that Mallory tried to hire him as a staff inventor, but he always resisted and he always maintained his independence. So, you know, Mallory is based in Indianapolis. Rubin, Samuel Rubin is inventing in New York. And any time he comes up with something cool, he licenses it to uh, his preferred um, licensee, Mallory. So World War II comes along uh, in 1940s and uh, the U.S. government sets up what's called the National Inventors Council. And essentially it's a crowdsourcing effort uh, because the U.S. Army and the Navy need uh, inventions and weapons to aid the war effort. So they put the call out to inventors and they say, hey, you know, here's all these things that we need. And one of the things on the list is they need an improved battery uh, that can resist the harsh, uh, hot and humid conditions of the Pacific theater. So soldiers were you know, getting their walkie talkies and they were sort of like just dying because the batteries were no good. So Ruben goes back to the lab. He develops this sealed mercury battery that resists all these ambient effects. It has five times better performance in the walkie talkies. He kind of becomes like one of the favorite examples of this crowdsourcing effort. And uh, then he, you know, like he always does, he works with Mallory to commercialize it after the war. So beyond the walkie-talkies, he uh, works with Mallory to put the battery, this little miniature battery, in uh, like hearing aids and pacemakers and wristwatches. And then he also starts on another project to develop alkaline batteries in the familiar like AA and C and D sizes. And he puts a copper top on these batteries to resist corrosion. And you can see where this is going, right? Mallory becomes so successful with Rubin's batteries that that copper top battery, uh, Mallory decides to rebrand as the company we know today as Duracell. So Samuel Rubin, I think is is probably one of my favorite inventors in the book, just because like the, the product that he developed is so well known and we see it every day uh, and use it like in a remote control. So uh, I really love his story.
1: Another story that I thought was particularly interesting was the one of Leo H. Bakeland. And he made, the, made a new photographic paper and was the inventor of Bakelite. So that was the first truly synthetic plastic. And it's 1909, so I'm really thinking plastic is important during this time. Um, there have been other experiments with plastic, right? Uh, we're talking about patent controversies over plastics that shared this interpretive flexibility about using similar ingredients, practically identical ingredients, but they're being made in a different way. What about these failed experiments of rival plastics like ivory, um, xylenite versus cell versus celluloid before bakelite came around? Um, wh- what can you tell us about these failed uh, inventions, so to speak, or are they failed at all?
0: Yeah, that's a great and really meaty question. And so I hope you'll forgive me, Nathan, if I if I subvert and turn around the question a little bit. Um, I am not a particular expert on Bakeland's invention, and I'm certainly not an expert on plastics. Um, and for anybody you know who would want an uh, answer to the more technical part of your question there, I would refer them to um, Joris Mercellus's really good book. It's called Beyond Bakelite. Uh came out with MIT Press, I want to say, about a year ago, probably 2019 or 2020. So for the technical stuff, look to Joris Marcellus. My interest in Bakeland in my book uh, was really around his um, role as an advocate um, for patent reform. So one of the things that Bakeland becomes a champion of independent inventors uh, for is is he really sees that the patent laws are inequitable and they're slanted towards um, the corporations. So you know, if you own a patent, um, the onus is on the patent owner to defend it. So what he was finding was that um, wealthy corporations would willfully infringe the patents of small-scale independent inventors and basically dare them to sue them, right? And Because these corporations knew that uh, an individual sole inventor did not have the legal resources and the money to wage a protracted uh, legal battle like a company like GE or DuPont would have. And so they would, it was kind of like a strategy, right? These corporations would ba- basically try to sue their independent inventor rivals into bankruptcy. And Bakeland recognized this um, early in the 19 teens and made a lot of speeches. You know, he was pretty prominent. I think he was the um, president of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. Uh, He served on like a lot of like government advisory committees and things like that. And he would testify before the congressional patent committees in both the House and Senate. And he would always kind of be a champion for independent inventors and say, you know, we need to reform the patent laws uh, to sort of level the playing field. So uh, I'm sorry that I can't give you a better answer on the technical aspects of his plastic inventions. But um, what really interested me about Bakeland was his role as an advocate. That sounds awesome. So the
1: inverse of this whole conversation um, is t- also taking us right to research and development. And you say that this is the era of R&D. So can you specify how is this the era of R&D? I think about companies like AT&T, DuPont, Kodak, GE. What more can you tell us about these companies?
0: Sure. So, um, you know, the corporate R&D uh, labs and, and the, the larger corporations are kind of the foil of this book, right? They're, the, they're, the, they're the, the, the people and the places that the independent inventors are kind of rubbing up against all the time and, and that they have rivalries with. So R&D, right? It's research and development. It's a different way of inventing and bringing products to market. Um, and I explained some of this in the introductory chapter of the book. Uh, there's a ton of literature on this. A lot of people have written on the emergence and history of corporate R&D. So, you know, arguably the first corporate R&D lab in the United States is General Electric. So General Electric is founded in 1892 when Thomas Edison, two independents, Thomas Edison and Elihu Thompson merged their interests. Uh, Edison had a lot of uh, direct current um inventions and Thompson had a lot of alternating current inventions. And so when they merged those together to become General Electric, now you have a full slate of products. Well, uh, come around, you know, the late 19th century, some of those, um, patents from Edison and Thompson were about to expire. You know, they realized that in order to remain competitive, GE would probably need to either acquire, uh, other, um, inventors inventions, uh, to expand their portfolio of products. Uh, But this was difficult because by 1890 you have the Sherman Antitrust Act, and these kinds of like horizontal mergers and takeovers were kind of being frowned upon uh, by anti-monopolists. So what GE decides to do is they turn internal. They decide, well, we're just going to invent new products. Well, how are we going to do that? They turn to you know they look to Edison, one of their co-founders, as inspiration. I had mentioned that he had founded the Menlo Park Laboratory in 1876. This was with funding from Western Electric, so it was corporate from the beginning. Uh, he was kind of on retainer to Western uh, Union, and you know he sets up this lab. He hires a bunch of assistants. It's kind of like combines a chemical lab and a machine shop, and they can, in, you know, under one roof, uh, be working on multiple projects at the same time. Uh, bring them from benchtop to commercialization relatively easily under one roof. And, you know, Edison uh, makes, you know, the phonograph and his incandescent lighting system at Menlo Park. So this is like a really powerful example for GE. Now, 10, 15 years later, they're like, okay, well, we should just do this generally now that we're General Electric. And they hire an MIT chemist named Willis Whitney to run the lab. And so that's uh, in about 1900. So a lot of companies, you know, see the success of General Electric and their lab. Uh, you know, they improve the light bulb. Um, They get different filaments that last longer. They invent x-ray machines. They're, you know, starting to develop a lot of different products. And so many other companies follow along, like you mentioned, AT&T, DuPont, Kodak, uh, Corning, Alcoa and others. And so, you know, from, you know, the emergence of the first, arguably the first uh, R&D lab in the U.S., uh, General Electric in 1900, About 25 years later, um, in 1927, uh, the National Research Council comes out with a study, and they have counted 999 corporate R&D labs. So there's this huge growth over about 25, 30 years, um, and now it's a thing that individual inventors have to deal with, and kind of becomes a foil for them.
1: R&D is definitely
0: important at that time,
1: um, clearly. Uh, But something else that's also important is corporate messaging advertising um and you know this whole thing about commercialization overall and you mentioned that ge's Irving Langmuir, who in 1932 became the first corporate scientist to win the nobel prize in chemistry um uh, he studied inert gases uh filaments and improved light bulbs um, it really helped ge develop new products like x-rays and microwave tubes uh and other examples of this are DuPont researchers, um, led by Wallace Carruthers. and he studied Corrales, chemi- yep, Corrales, yep. Yes, he studied the chemistry of polymers that led to neoprene and nylon. And so the question that comes up now is: Did independent inventors ever get met with this kind of acclaim and popularity that R and D did during the same era?
0: You know, that's a a great question, and it gets to the heart of one of the arguments in my book. So, um, you know, looking before the scope of my book to the heroic era, right? You've got Edison, Bell, Colt, uh, Morse. They become very famous, right? It's often called the heroic era of invention, right? They really get well known for their inventions, uh, but starting in the R&D era around 1900, something changes, right? And, and you've really uh, caught on to this with your question is like, how come we don't know um, in the same way inventors from this 20th century period, you know, like, how come we don't know uh, the name Samuel Rubin uh, that I mentioned before, Chester Carlson, who um, invented the photocopier? How come they, they're, they're not as famous in our minds as some of these other heroes like Edison and Bell and, and Colt? Part of the reason is, um, and I argue this in one of the first chapters of the book, is that uh, the corporations uh, are, are part of this uh, phenomenon. The corporations realize that they need to win the public's trust. They've developed this new way of inventing, right? It's, it's PhD scientists. It's in a lab. Uh, we're kind of working on multiple things together. Um, how can you give credit uh, to one person when it's a whole lab of people working Uh, and they want to legitimize their new form of invention called R&D. And unlike an individual, um, corporations have a lot of budget to put towards things like public relations and advertising. And so they go on a concerted effort to really celebrate and promote their R&D labs and to promote people like Irving Langmuir and Wallace Carruthers. Uh, And at the same time, they're kind of um, maligning Uh, the independent inventors. They want to establish their R&D labs as like the new, sophisticated, like better way of inventing. And in their ads, they say things like, well, we have a shiny lab with, you know, 300 associates and uh, a $2 million annual budget. And these, you know, independents are sort of a thing of the past and they're mere tinkerers. And Uh, In their speeches and and things like that, the the directors of these labs kind of go out of their way to malign the independent inventors because they want to legitimize their new form of invention. And so I think that's a big, big part of why we don't know the names of independent inventors in this era is because the corporate machine really kind of got behind uh, this effort to malign them and celebrate their own R&D labs.
1: What else can you tell us about independent inventors? who have the scientific backgrounds and training, is there anything that sets them apart uh, and that makes their research process different than industrial researchers or corporate or employee inventors?
0: You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, one of the things I found um, among the independent inventors in my book is that they have a real range of um, educational attainment uh, and experience. So I mentioned Samuel Rubin, right? He had a high school education. Uh, he was kind of a autodidact. He was able to, you know, uh, uh, latch on with this professor from Columbia and kind of teach himself. And then at the other end of that spectrum, you have someone like Leo Baekeland. Uh, you know, has a PhD in chemistry from the University of Leuven in Belgium. Uh, another um, PhD independent inventor uh, that I feature in the book briefly is um, Lee DeForest. So. Uh, He has a a PhD in engineering from Yale and he goes on to um, invent many of the key radio patents. So um, I don't know that there's necessarily anything different about those uh, kind of highly educated uh, independent inventors like uh, Bakeland and DeForest. Uh, If anything, maybe they have a few more connections, right? They remain kind of connected uh, to the university academic world a bit more. Um, But, you know, Lakeland didn't want to work for a big company. He wanted to remain independent. Same with DeForest. DeForest uh, actually starts out after his PhD working for uh, Western Electric, which is the um, kind of manufacturing wing of AT&T. And, you know, so he starts out kind of as like a corporate researcher. And uh, there's this great diary entry that I found from like the late 1890s. And he's just like, I hate this. (laughs) I want to quit. Uh, I want, they're having me, you know, you know, lug grease around and like work on dumb projects that I don't care about. I want to invent my own thing, right? So, um, you know, uh, I think that's a very similar circumstance and and attitude among the independents in the book, whether you have a high school education or a PhD is this, um, the core thing that kind of unites them all is this like uh, instinct for autonomy and kind of wanting to work on their own projects and not take orders from anybody.
1: You also mentioned R&D mediums like universities and government laboratories, examples of this, so like MIT Radiation Lab, the National Bureau of Standards, um, and contract research firms, uh, Arthur D. Little or, or Battelle. Um, this book focuses on the tensions between ind- independent inventors and corporate researchers. But were there ever any instances where independent inventors ever crossed that boundary uh, and ventured into R and D, uh, or vice versa.
0: Sure, you know uh, that's a great question because um, you have to you have to delimit your book some way, right? There are many sources of invention, uh, as you suggest, right? There's the independents that I focus on. There's the corporate R and D, but there's also these contract research firms like Patel or university laboratories like the MIT Radiation Lab. So I really focused on this interaction between two of those sources: the independent. In uh, the corporate um, R and D labs, uh, but there there were some of these instances uh, where there was crossover here. So earlier, I mentioned Chester Carlson. So Chester Carlson uh, is a patent attorney, uh, but he's also a tinkerer, and he invents the um, Xerox photocopying uh, process. And I should say photocopying process because this is how Battelle comes in. You know, he's got a prototype for his dry ink copying process. Uh, but he's having a hard time commercializing it. And he's, you know, writes dozens of letters to all kinds of office machine companies. And they all politely write back and say, no, thanks. Um, you know, there's letters in his file from like IBM saying, no, thanks. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's a great missed opportunity stories there. Um, and, uh, so he decides to write this place called Battelle. I think it's based in Ohio and they're kind of like a contract research organization. And he cuts a deal, uh, you know, Battelle takes a small percentage of equity in the idea uh, and agrees to help uh, improve his prototype and then uh, sell it around to see if they can find a licensee or someone who will um, uh, commercialize it. So Battelle uh, ends up finding a licensee in a company called Halloid, it's based in Rochester. Um, which, of course, is an, an important uh, town for all kinds of imaging, right? This is the headquarters of Kodak. And if you think about it, you've got a glass plate and light, and it's very similar to, um, to photography in a way. So, um, you know, Chester Carlson, the independent, works with Patel, the contract researcher, uh, finds a licensee in Haloid, which uh, is based in Rochester, and then Haloid commercializes the photocopier, and eventually Halloid, uh rebrands itself and becomes Xerox. And then Xerox, as it grows huge in the 1970s, it opens its own R&D laboratory uh, and explicitly locates it in Palo Alto, uh, California, way across the country from its Rochester headquarters so that it can be near all of the good research coming out of Stanford University, Berkeley, other places. Uh, So there's kind of this interesting mix between all those different sources. uh, When you think about the story of Chester Carlson and, uh, and the Xerox photocopier.
1: Another thing that shows up is NASA and DARPA being criticized about development contracts um, being awarded to blue chip firms over entrepreneurial uh, startups. Where do you see the trend of big government contracts going in the future? Like there are a lot of rocket companies growing, or many of them, um, but is there a lot of invention happening there?
0: You know, um, I, I mentioned this tension in, um, in the conclusion of the book, and this is kind of like some modern examples, right? 21st century examples. You know, um, there's always a lot of skepticism about where government contracts go, right? What are the best sources of invention? If you're NASA, you know, should we be... Uh, contracting to the Lockheeds and Boeings of the world, or should we be looking to scrappier startups like SpaceX? At the time they were scrappier. Now they're big, right? Um, Who should we be going to for things like improved spacesuits, right? Should we be going to, you know, I don't know, whatever the incumbent spacesuit company is, or turn to this kind of unknown independent inventor. I have a great story about this guy named Peter Homer, Uh, who is a former aerospace engineering R&D scientist. He kind of gets disillusioned, goes independent, and he's based in Maine, right? This is not like a hotbed of, uh, you know, government contracting or anything like that. Uh, And from his uh, dining room, uh, he's responding to a NASA challenge, right? So part of what NASA and the federal government is trying to do, I argue, in the 21st century is to diversify uh, its sources of invention, right? Not just look at the Boeings and the Lockheeds of the world, but also look at small and middle-sized companies and even individuals right, like Peter Homer. So he responds to this crowdsourcing challenge and the challenge is, hey, you know, for, uh, if you can invent a uh, more uh, flexible and dexterous uh, spaceship glo- or spacesuit glove, uh, you can win a $100,000 prize. So he invents this thing in his dining room in Maine with a sewing machine and simple tools like scissors and tape and stuff. And he wins the challenge and, you know, wins the prize and then licenses it to some of the bigger companies that he beat and they're bringing it to market. So, um, you know, I guess one of the arguments I would make in the book, and I think the story of Peter Homer is illustrative of this is that I think government, is figuring out that if you want to um, have successful innovation, you need to plant seeds in a lot of different places and see where the flowers grow, right? Sometimes it is going to be with a traditional uh, big R&D company like Boeing or Lockheed, but sometimes it's going to be with the small independent inventor based in Maine, uh, inventing a glove on his dining room table.
1: And since 2010, how has the Lemelson Center for the Study of, In- of Invention and Innovation um, helped your research on this topic? Uh, do you like the job and did it change your views at all?
0: You know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so let me just say a little bit about the, the Lemelson Center. So um, the Lemelson Center was endowed by an independent inventor. So a guy named Jerome Lemelson um, was a very um, prolific independent inventor. I think he had over 600 patents and uh, was able to uh, successfully license uh, these to many companies and became a, a wealthy man. And he and his wife uh, founded the Lumelson Foundation and the foundation in turn established the Limelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, uh, I think it was in 1995 or 1996. So the center was established uh, long before I came along. Um, as you mentioned, uh, I started at the Limelson Center in 2010. But before that, and I'd I mentioned this, um, I, Ruth Cowan had introduced me to the founding director is a historian named Arthur Malella. Uh, and one of the things uh, that Art turned me on to was that um, the Lemelson Center had been collecting the papers of independent inventors and you know, processing them and putting them into the archives of the muse- museum and making them available Uh, for researchers like me to use. So even before I started working there, when I was uh, uh, working on my dissertation at UPenn, I was very fortunate to um, receive a a graduate fellowship uh, to work for about three, four months in Washington, D.C. I temporarily relocated, and I just would plant myself in the archives every day. And I would look at the papers uh, of these independent inventors, of people like Joseph Friedman, who invented the flexible straw, the drinking straw, Uh, Earl Tupper, uh, who invented Tupperware, um, you know, and Wadsworth Mount who invented, uh, this sort of, uh, anti-aircraft device of Everett Bickley who invented this optical sorting machine and on and on and on. There's probably a dozen sets of, uh, inventors papers, uh, that I found at the Lemelson Center. Well, you know, I got very lucky. I finished the dissertation and, uh, when I was on the job market in 2009, 2010, I was very lucky. Uh, the Limelson Center had an open position for a historian, and I just so happened to, to know everybody because I had been there as a fellow, and I had perfect sort of training and expertise for for what they were looking for, right? Someone who studies uh, inventors in the U.S. So uh, I've been very fortunate to work at the Limelson Center since 2010. And I should also say, too, that since I have started working there, Another important influence uh, is my teammate Joyce Beatty. She was um, she's a senior historian at the center. Um, she's there from the beginning, 1995, 96. Longtime colleague and um, is one of the editors of the book series that um, the Limelson Center has with MIT Press. Her advice was that I really needed to um, kind of expand the range of cases that I use in the book. So. The dissertation had a lot of white men, to be perfectly honest. And Joyce's insight, and I think it was a good one, was that we needed to diversify the cases. So I worked really hard uh, in developing the book from the dissertation to find more stories of women inventors, more stories of black inventors, uh, immigrant inventors, and tried to really diversify the book a bit uh, so that it was more balanced. So um, from top to bottom, uh, the Lumelson Center has been uh, you know, great influence. Uh, on my work, a great place to work uh, for the last 10, 11 years. Diversification is a striking uh, topic that
1: will lead into this next question. What about your public exhibitions and public programming about independent inventors? Uh, Did these independent inventors make communities amongst themselves? Uh, You mentioned a few of these, like the Franklin Institute, uh, the American Association of Inventors and Manufacturers and the Inventors Guild, who lobbied for political reforms um, to to get respect from a skeptical public. What about these?
0: Yeah, so there's an entire chapter um, of the book devoted to the different ways that um, independent inventors banded together. I I just thought this was really fascinating, right? So these folks who otherwise love to be lone wolves and sort of act with autonomy uh, from time to time would band together with their fellow inventors to build um, social groups, uh, membership organizations, clubs, whatever you want to call it, to um, help them achieve their goals. So I'll just briefly go through some of those you mentioned. So the, the Franklin Institute has been around forever. I think it was founded in like the 1820s. It's based in Philadelphia. It was basically a clubhouse for inventors. Um, they had a technical library with um, books on all kinds of subjects Uh, They would have a lecture program where inventors would come and demonstrate their um, inventions on Friday evenings. They had a really fascinating uh, uh, program called the Committee on Science and the Arts where an inventor, uh, even if they didn't live in Philadelphia, they could write in uh, to the Franklin Institute and ask for an evaluation of their invention. And the, the Franklin Institute's members would put together a committee of three people. They would evaluate the invention And if it was bad, they would tell the inventor, they would say, you know what, you probably weren't aware of this, but this thing's already been invented, you know, good luck. Right. So it saved inventors time. But if it was a good invention, they would celebrate it. Right. They would invite the inventor to come to Philadelphia, give a lecture. And uh, the Franklin Institute also gave, um, they set up a lot of like um, exhibitions and fairs. So um, inventors could uh, meet the public and find an audience for their inventions. So, Uh, Franklin Institute was uh, really helpful to uh, inventors for a long time. Um, Some of the other groups I mentioned, you know, you mentioned the American Association uh, of Inventors and Manufacturers and the Inventors Guild. Those were really about trying to reform the patent system um, in ways that I mentioned. Uh, Bakeland was one of the uh, founding members of the Inventors Guild. We talked about his advocacy on behalf of trying to get fair patent laws. Uh, And then the third kind of category of groups that I found were... um, more informal um, groups of women inventors and African American inventors that tried to band together in solidarity. Um, for much of the period that I study, um, you know, at least before 1920, you know, women did not have the right to vote. Um, you know, black citizens uh, were marginalized in a lot of ways. Jim Crow laws, all these kinds of things. So they had limited rights, but the patent system was relatively democratic. Um, even though women couldn't vote and, and, and black citizens didn't have very many rights, they could still earn a patent. And this became, um, inventing became a, a method of sort of um, economic and social mobility. So there were efforts uh, that I talk about in the book among women's groups and groups of black inventors to publicize the, um, the achievements of women inventors and to publicize the achievements of black inventors. And I tell some of those stories uh, in the book. With these
1: organizations often disbanding within 10 to 20 years, was there ever any hope for revival?
0: Yeah, so great question. So one of the arguments about all these groups uh, from the Franklin Institute through the Inventors Guild on down is I find that they only uh, last for about 10 or 20 years. The Franklin Institute's a little bit of, of an exception. It's still around. It's still in Philadelphia, but they kind of changed their... Uh, mode of operation—they're—they're they're no longer an inventor's clubhouse so much as uh, a museum for um, Philadelphia school children. And so many of those services for inventors, like the evaluation service, the fairs, um, the library—all that's gone now. So, um, and many of these other groups, like the Inventors Guild, the AAIM—they just—they fall apart. Like they just can't sustain their organizations, and they don't achieve. Uh, any of their goals in terms of liberalizing the patent system or anything like that. Same with the, the women's groups and the African-American uh, groups, right? Some of them come together and they're able to put on one or two fairs, maybe publish one or two issues of a newsletter, and then they just kind of fall apart. And so, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that's tough for independent inventors. They're not able to sustain their um, organizations that would otherwise provide support for them. And I find that the same thing is still true in the twenty-first century. Um, one of the stories that I tell is of a group called uh, Quirky. Uh, so Quirky is as a crowdsourcing uh, website. You can still go to quirky.com, but um, and and there is the same sort of idea, right? Is like you know if you have a good idea, submit it uh, to Quirky, and they'll evaluate it. And if they think it's good, they'll put some of their own capital in, and um, they'll develop the uh, invention for you, and then give the inventor. of share of, of the royalties. Well, quirky is successful for a little while, but then it falls on hard times. It goes bankrupt. It goes into receivership. Someone buys it. They try to bring it out again. It's been struggling. So, I mean, I guess the, the big, uh, argument here is that yes, while inventors do band together and they do form these organizations, uh, they tend to be fragile, whether that was in the 20th century or even now today.
1: And identities for women, uh, inventors, African-American inventors, um, that had to conceal who they were. Could um, you explain further how they these identities formed and when they
0: formed? Sure, that's a great question. So um, I mentioned uh, a minute ago that, um, you know, in an era of limited suffrage and disenfranchisement and limited rights for um, women and African-Americans, they could still... Um, they could still earn a patent, right? The patent law still, to this day, has no restrictions on age, race, national origin, religion, any category, right? So they'll, um, they'll give the patent to the first and true inventor, no matter who it is. Um, but the reality is um, women inventors and African-American inventors still faced a certain kind of prejudice at the patent office and especially in the marketplace. So I tell a couple of stories, kind of heartbreaking stories uh, about how this works. Um, So uh, there was this uh, prominent, relatively prominent um, African-American inventor named Garrett Morgan. Uh, He's based in Cleveland, uh, and his papers are at the Western Reserve Historical Society. Uh, He invents um, a traffic signal, uh, kind of this uh, red, yellow, green traffic signal uh, a variety of that that gets uh, licensed by um, uh, by General Electric for like forty thousand dollars. There's a lot of money, like in the nineteen teens, twenties. Uh, his other famous invention, and he has several, but probably the other second uh, famous invention is uh, a, a gas mask. It's like a smoke hood. So it's got this hood that you put over your head, and then there's like a, a long uh, hose that goes down to ground level, so that um, um, you can kind of breathe in fresh air if you're in a fire or in a you know like a, a some sort of place where the air is not good. So Morgan goes to great lengths to conceal his identity because he is um, afraid that if consumers knew that he was a black inventor, they would not buy his invention. So he hires white actors uh, to pose with his smoke hood and all of the pamphlets and literature and um, kind of advertisements of his smoke hood feature white actors holding the hood. Uh, And I mentioned some of these um, inventors' exhibitions and fairs. He would also hire white actors to go with him to these fairs. And the white actor would say to anyone who came up, I'm Garrett Morgan, the inventor. And uh, Morgan himself would pretend to be a person called Big Chief Mason, uh, a Native American. And so they would do demonstrations. So Big Chief Mason, Morgan dressed as Big Chief Mason, would build the fire uh, in a teepee and it would be smoky. And while the white actor portraying uh, Garrett Morgan ostensibly uh, is explaining the invention, uh, the real Garrett Morgan would put the smoke hood on in the guise of Big Chief Mason, go into the teepee uh, in all the smoke and then come out unharmed. And so I just my heart kind of broke for Garrett Morgan. I was like, you know, you had to sort of hire someone else to pretend to be you to sell your invention. Now, his identity gets revealed in a dramatic way. In Cleveland, um, the the Cleveland Waterworks had um, a big drain out in the middle of Lake Erie, like a mile from shore, where they would um, intake all the water for the city's waterworks. And some workers got trapped uh, under the surface there, like a mile out, in a fire, in an explosion. So they call Garrett Morgan. He and his brother don the gas gas masks. They go into this deep tunnel uh, filled with smoke, and they rescue the workers. Uh, But his picture is snapped in the Cleveland newspapers, and it's revealed to everyone that he's a black inventor. Well, several of the fire uh, fire stations and fire captains that had purchased his gas mask canceled their orders. So it was really heartbreaking that this person would have to sort of conceal his identity. And then at the moment of sort of triumph, when he uh, in real time shows how well the invention works, and it's revealed that he's a black inventor, it's actually to his detriment. So that I thought was a really sort of heartbreaking finding about how certain inventors tried to actually conceal their identities. Are there
1: other examples of historians who are documenting, interpreting, um, or telling the stories of obscured inventors' achievements in this way? Uh, The Smithsonian is a very uh, prominent example of this, but what else are we doing today to keep the memory of these inventors um, alive.
0: Yeah, um, I, I appreciate that. Um, it's, um, there's been some interest um, in academia. Uh, there's a handful of people working on some of these questions. Some of my colleagues that are working on um, documenting the contributions of independent inventors include um, Naomi Lamoureux at Yale University, uh, Tom Nicholas uh, at Harvard Business School. Uh, Eric Dahlin, who is a sociologist uh, at uh, Brigham Young University. So uh, if you're interested, and those tend to be very um, quantitative um, uh, studies, Uh, if you go look up their papers, you'll see they do a lot of counting and analysis of patents, who took out the patents, are they corporate patents or individual patents? And I've leaned a lot on their research. Uh, So um, go check out those papers by Lamoureux, Nicholas, and Dahlin. Um, but I appreciate you bringing up the Lumelson Center um, and the Smithsonian because we've done a lot of work to um, to connect uh, the public to the stories of these independent inventors. You know, so we you know we we have a, a multi pronged strategy for doing that. I mentioned how the center uh, collects and preserves the papers of independent inventors, and we're doing that all the time. You know, so like a recent acquisition was the papers of uh, Robert Kearns. Uh, he was the inventor of the intermittent windshield wiper, and he was the subject of uh, the movie Flash of Genius, starring Greg Kinnear, uh, that tells about his battle with Ford and other car companies. So, uh, you know, we're preserving the papers of independent inventors, and then those become the kind of raw materials upon which our other interpretive work is based. So, you know, we do exhibitions, uh, you know, we have over 3,000 square foot of gallery space in the museum devoted to stories uh, of inventors, some corporate, but many of them independent inventors. And we also do uh, public programs. Uh, so in the era of Zoom, we do a lot of webinars where uh, we'll have what amounts to fireside chats with all kinds of independent inventors, uh, from Lonnie Johnson, uh, the African American inventor of the Super Soaker and other toys uh, and inventions, um, to people who are inventing sports and video games and all kinds of things. So. Uh, Thanks for the plug for giving me a chance to plug the Limelson Center, but you know, check us out at invention.si.edu to see what we've got going in the galleries and uh, in our public programming.
1: Are we still in the era of research and development or R&D? Um, today's big tech firms like Google and Zuckerberg's Facebook have dealt with, you know, accusations of surveillance and censorship, but are these kinds of questions the same a backlash that R&D ever received in the past, or is it something else completely?
0: You know, I think we still are uh, in the era of corporate R&D. You know, if you just go look, um, and God bless the uh, USPTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, because they are really good about putting out their statistics. Um, And you can see that the top patentees in any given year are all massive corporations. It's IBM, it's Google, it's Facebook, it's, you know, Sony, it's, you know, all the ones that you would expect. So, you know, R&D labs are still doing a lot of business, right? They're still cranking out a lot of uh, patents. They're still employing a lot of scientists. They still have huge budgets and huge uh, corporate campuses and whatnot. So I don't think R&D is going away anytime soon. Uh, but I do think there is a greater recognition, um, at the corporate level, which is the same as, as the government level, which we talked about earlier, which is the idea that I don't think corporations, um, look to their own labs as the only source of inventions. There was a period where they did that, right? They, you know, were maybe a little snobby about this and they would say, oh, you know, we're RCA or we're IBM. Um, And we don't need, uh, you know, to go out and license inventions from independent inventors. But, you know, they're finding that they're getting scooped sometimes. Um, So, you know, like in the 1970s, uh, IBM, who was making, you know, millions and billions off of mainframe computers, uh, almost missed the personal computer uh, moment. Right. So they got scooped by some independents like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak with Apple Computer. Uh, Or software companies uh, like Microsoft, also founded by a couple of Harvard dropouts doing stuff in their dorm room, uh, Paul Allen and Bill Gates. So I think there's a greater recognition that, yes, while R&D is here to stay and it's not going anywhere, that they need to and they are constantly scanning the environment for interesting patents that come about uh, independent inventors or small university inventor professors that are kind of doing interesting things and trying to create um, partnerships with them. Um, the other part of that question was like, you know, I don't know for better or worse, the big evil corporation, right? Like I think that's, we've always had that, right. Some of these classic R and D companies, AT&T, you know, has been sued many, many times for being a monopoly. Um, you know, it's, I think Facebook and Google are just different varieties of that. Um, I think, uh, we're seeing many of the same things play out in the same ways that RCA made life difficult for Philo Farnsworth. I'm sure the Facebooks and Googles of the world, now that they're big and powerful are making it tough and using their leverage uh, in similar ways against today's independent inventors.
1: Yeah. We have a public digital humanities course here at Auburn that's garnered more interest and the online world is definitely making new accessible uh, mediums and venues for history to be acceptable, uh, accessible to a broader audience. Um, Oracle and other cloud providers like that are also hosting different web applications as well. Um, are you doing anything with Digital Humanities to spread the awareness of independent invention?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, the Limelson Center's website. So uh, it's invention.si.edu and the SI is for Smithsonian Institution. So, yeah, go check us out. We have a, a really um, uh, active uh, blog presence. You'll see stories um, of different things we're working on, different research um, that we're doing. I mentioned the, the collecting of, of uh, inventors papers. So there's all kinds of searchable, searchable databases Uh, for um, the stories of independent inventors that are in our archives. Uh, The Lumelson Center also can be found uh, on YouTube. We have a pretty robust YouTube channel, so I mentioned these fireside chats. We have a long-running series called Innovative Lives, uh, where basically we invite an inventor, uh, often an independent inventor, to sit down and have a talk, and they tell us about their lives and their careers, the challenges they've faced. And, you know, we have dozens of those uh, interviews posted to the Lemelson Center's YouTube channel, Um, you know, uh, and and other different programs, too. We do more scholarly symposia. We've done some interesting symposia on different topics like uh, uh, black inventors and innovators. That was last year in 2020. Those videos are up on invention.si.edu. We're preparing for a new um, symposium this fall, November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd on immigrant inventors. So look for those um, videos coming out. So yeah, we're we're constantly using uh, our website as a platform to get the word out about uh, historical inventors and inventors from today.
1: That's good to hear. Um, Doctors Elijah Gaddis and Keith Herbert, also at Auburn, they have a project titled Bloody Sunday, Selma and the Long Civil Rights Movement. And this will appear um, as a pair of week-long workshops to include 72 K through 12 educators. Um, And it's going to go over the significance of Selma and things of that sort. But are there historical landmarks related to invention and innovation anywhere, especially with these independent types? Um, I'd love to go on a tour, but I don't know if they're available. (laughs)
0: You know, that's a great question. And I admire those two professors for, for what they're doing and translating their research uh, and what they know to be able to better inform uh, K-12 teachers. That's wonderful. So the Smithsonian has uh, a very dedicated um, education uh, component. Uh, you know, the, the, the motto or the founding motto of the Smithsonian is the increase and in diffusion of knowledge. Uh, that was in the bequest from uh, Smithson himself and so we take that diffusion um part of the mission very seriously so um you know I, i'm sorry if i sound like a broken record check out invention.si.edu we've got materials um for k to 12 educators there about inventors um but to the other part of your question um are there landmarks and you know i'm racking my brain a little bit um because the two that come to mind are are more of what you might call the heroic inventors. Um, You know, so I'm thinking of um, uh, the Edison uh, National Historic Site is in Orange, New Jersey. This was his second lab uh, after Menlo Park. So you can go get a tour of his uh, lab in Orange, New Jersey. The other one, which is fabulous, and I just went there last summer, was um, in uh, Kitty Hawk or Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. It's the site of uh, the um, the Wright brothers first flight in 1903, uh, on the beach there in North Carolina. And, uh, so that was great. Uh, you know, they have, uh, kind of replicas of the, I guess what you would call the first hangar, (laughs) right. Uh, ever in history. Uh, and, you know, you can walk down the flight line and, uh, kind of, they have a replica of the flyer there as well. So, you know, those are two, what you might call heroic era inventors, but I'm struggling to think of an example of a historic site or a place you could visit for the kinds of inventors I'm talking about, like the less known uh, later inventors that come more in the later part of the 20th century. So I'll have to think about that one a little more. And I guess maybe it's a sign that we need more of this kind of thing, Nathan. (laughs) The era
1: of a lot of this discussion has, you know, started in 1890 um, and, you know, progressed through the 20th century. But, the, but things really began to shake up during the New Deal era with patents. So what happened, you know, in the 1930s during the New Deal?
0: Right. Uh, great question. So I have a whole um, chapter devoted to uh, what I call the elusiveness of patent reform. So um, all along this uh, era that you mentioned, so 1890 is a convenient starting point because that's the year that the Sherman Antitrust Act is uh, put into law. And so this is the, one of the first uh, anti-monopoly laws. And the idea was that um, there was a recognition in Congress and politically that, you know, if companies got too big and, you know, you think of some of the classics like Standard Oil or, or others, uh, AT&T eventually got this big, right? It, it would have an anti-competitive effect in the marketplace where, you know, Standard Oil could use its size and, um, and sort of purchasing power and its leverage to basically crowd out smaller competitors. They would just you know, gouge prices and make it difficult for others to compete. The same was true in the technical industries. Um, by the you know, 1920s and 30s, uh, Congress was realizing that patents were a big part of how technical firms maintain their monopolies. So, you know, uh, if you've got, uh, You know, you're General Electric and you've got a patent on a certain way to make a light bulb. Um, You could use that patent. um, And if you think a smaller rival, and I tell this story of a smaller rival named uh, Charles Eisler, uh, New Jersey inventor who makes the machines that make the light bulbs. So GE tries to sue him out of business. Essentially, they, you know, four lawsuits against him. And, and the basis of those lawsuits are GE's patents. And so Congress kind of starts to understand, helped along by people like Bakeland making speeches, that patents are part of how monopolies maintain their monopolies. And so uh, Congress convenes these two hearings in 1939 and 1940, where they're looking at kind of the role of patents and how they're intertwined with monopoly. And there's a lot of um, discussion about um you know, should we reduce the patent term from 17 years to three years? Should we create uh, a compulsory licensing statute, right? A lot of times the big companies would invent a method for doing something and stick it in a drawer, uh, basically just so no one else could have it, right? They, they, and Congress thought, well, this is kind of like the opposite of um what the intent of the founders was when they created the patent clause in the constitution so they were looking at all these different aspects of the patent system and, and trying to figure out what was fair and what wasn't fair and what reforms should we make um and there was this moment where there was hope for reform but then world war ii comes along and everyone you know those hopes get dashed and so um you know i i basically argue that you know independent inventors tried for a long time to reform the patent laws and they didn't really ever succeed
1: It really looks like inventors also reared themselves a bad reputation early on, but things did start to change. In 1915, Edison's Naval Consulting Board evaluated 100,000 new inventions, but only used one, he wrote. (laughs) And two decades later, uh, during World War II, we get Samuel Rubin's walkie-talkie batteries and Charles Hayden's Hayden's landmine detectors. Um, So what happened with that and why did why did that reputation change?
0: Great question. Um, I have a, a, a whole chapter devoted to um, the ways that independent inventors uh, mobilized for the national defense, uh, both in World War I and World War II. So I, I talked about the World War II example a little bit with Samuel Rubin, but let me go backwards. So 1915, uh, the war, World War I, or what was then called the Great War, had started in Europe, but the U.S. wasn't in it yet. Um, and there was a lot of fear around the country that the United States was not prepared for war. And so there's a lot of preparedness efforts and, you know, a lot of columnists and newspaper people are looking around and they're like, you know, um, you know, the, U S isn't ready. So Thomas Edison, um, you know, basically sits down with a reporter and has this long interview where he says, you know what? We may be slightly unprepared in terms of the size of our army and the size of our military and the size of our Navy, but here's the U.S. advantage. If it turns out that we get drawn into this European war, you know, we have inventors, you know, and my proposal is that we mobilize the nation's inventors and we, you know, build a stockpile of advanced dreadnoughts and submarines and machine guns and airplanes and, you know, when the time comes, if the time comes that we get drawn into World War One, um, we'll use the the native inventive genius of America to sort of uh, wage a technological war uh, if we get drawn in. And so this uh, interview that Edison does in like 1914, 1915 captures the imagination of uh, the secretary of the Navy named Josephus Daniels. And Daniels basically takes him up on it. He says, hey, if you're serious about this, let's do it. So they found this thing called the Naval Consulting Board. uh, And Edison recruits a whole bunch of inventors to come and brainstorm and develop um, inventions that would aid the Navy. The Army also sets up much later a smaller uh, kind of similar um, effort. And so not only are the inventors that are named to the board, this would be people like Edison, Leo Bakeland, Frank Sprague and others. They're inventing their own inventions, but they also do this crowdsourcing thing where they put the call out to the nation and say, "Hey, if you've got an idea, you know, send us your idea and we'll evaluate it." Um, so, you know, as you can imagine, uh, the naval consulting board gets like all these harebrained ideas about like submarine nets and things that like don't work, and uh, and they get really frustrated. Um, and so, you know, by the end of the war. 1918, uh, the U.S. does eventually get drawn into the war. the uh, The Naval Consulting Board has evaluated over 110,000 inventions from the public, but they only implement one, uh, which is a flight trainer. And so this really saddles the the independent inventors with a poor reputation. It's like, what the heck? You know, I thought we were the United States. There's a lot of like op eds about how you know the the U.S. isn't nearly as inventive anymore. Oh, and by the way. Uh, at the same time, the corporate and university scientists are, have their own effort, the National Research Council, and they're developing all kinds of great methods for submarine detection, uh, using uh, advanced physics for sonar and all these kinds of things. And so, uh, and this is on top of all of the uh, corporate PR that's happening, where the corporate inventors are maligning the independents. So, like this moment is really interesting in World War One, where um, you know the independents get this this bad reputation. Uh, which is a result of their poor perform- performance during that war, but also the continued corporate PR efforts. Now, that was a long answer. But then fast forward 20 years later to World War II, uh, and uh, the government kind of learns its lessons. Uh, World War II comes about. They do another crowdsourcing effort. Uh, but they they learn how to clean up some of the mistakes from the past, and they have a much better record. So I mentioned Samuel Rubin and the the batteries that performed better. Uh, in the, the ambient, uh, harsh conditions of the Pacific uh, that later became Duracell. You get the, the classic uh, kind of mine detector, which looks like a little flat pad at the end of a long rod. Uh, that is as a result of the crowdsourcing effort invented by an independent inventor named Charles Hedens. Uh, You know, different inventions uh, where uh, down pilots can signal to a rescue airplane, things like that. So in World War II, the inventors uh, kind of rebound a bit and they have a better showing than they had in World War I. And so I use that to sort of argue to say, hey, look, even in 1945, the end of World War II, uh, independent inventors are still making really important and even patriotic contributions uh, at a time when a lot of people would have written them off.
1: And we briefly touched on the recent release of your book, but uh, what do you plan to do in the future with this release? Um, and what direction do you think your research will lead you towards?
0: Great question. Um, well, I'm delighted to be talking to you today, Nathan, and I'm, I'm hoping to do some other talks. I'm going to give a colloquium talk at the the museum uh, via Zoom uh, in November uh, and hope to, uh, you know, just keep promoting the book and, and getting the ideas out there. I hope to actually talk to some uh, inventors groups. We talked about the fragility of some of those groups, but they're still around, right? So there's like a, a, a DC, uh, inventors group that's local here and many other inventors groups. The USPTO puts on a lot of programming, uh, around the history of invention. I hope to be able to, to give a talk there and, and kind of, um, make sure that this book gets into the hands of exactly the people I'm writing about. Right. That's one of my goals. Um, in terms of the next project, um, one of the things I'm working on right now with my Lemelson Center colleagues, uh, is a new exhibition, uh, and uh, publication project that's all about, um, invention technology and sports. Uh, so we're calling that game changers. Um, and the exhibition, uh, going to be about 3,000, 3,500 square feet. It's going to be on the first floor of the national museum of American history should open in 2023. Um, And it looks at like all the different uh, cool inventions that underlie uh, sports. Right. If you think about it, pretty much every sport um, is mediated by some kind of technology, whether that's like, you know, um, metal tennis rackets. Right. We used to have wood tennis rackets and then uh, Howard Head came along and invented uh, kind of graphite uh, rackets and other lighter materials um, or, or whether it's something like a really precise photo finish camera. I had a great conversation with, uh, an inventor named Doug DeAngelis, uh, with Lynx technologies. And in the eighties, he was really frustrated. Photo finish cameras used to be like wet film, right? It was like Polaroid or wet film. And he figured out a way to digitize that and have uh, much uh, faster and more precise results. And so, you know, his firm and those cameras, uh, are in place in every kind of race you can imagine from the Kentucky Derby to the NCAA track and field finals. Um, So we've got all kinds of great stories uh, like that, that we're working on and uh, we'll probably have a companion book that comes out with the exhibition. And I'm hoping to be one of the editors and primary authors of that. So look for game changers uh, coming to the museum and hopefully to a bookstore near you. Definitely. I think I'm definitely
1: waiting for that one to come out for sure. (laughs) All right. What invention are you still waiting for someone to make, if at all?
0: Oh, Oh, man. Um, I don't know. This is a a glib answer, but uh, I think uh, I'm looking for someone to invent the time machine because I'd love to be able to uh, go back and give myself a little more time. Uh, I, I often joke with my wife that we'd love to be able to stop time Uh, catch up on our overflowing inboxes and all the stuff I'm not getting done at home and then like restart it and now we're caught up. So I don't know if anyone out there is working on that sort of thing, but uh, uh, being busy is good, but I could use a little more time. So if anyone's inventing a time machine that could help me, I think that'd be the one I want.
1: And what's next for inventors? Uh, How do you see this book helping the independent inventor in the 21st century? And what do you hope that people can learn from your work? Great question.
0: Um, You know, I hope that um, if an independent inventor from the 21st century, from 2021, picks up my book, they'll kind of see themselves in it, that they'll think to themselves, wow, okay, finally someone saw me, right? They understand kind of what I'm going through, how tough it is to be an independent inventor in an era of corporate R&D. It's rewarding work, but it's also challenging. Uh, It can kind of be a very precarious lifestyle (laughs) Some of these inventors go for years without making a profit or a dime, right? It's, uh, it can be really hard. So I hope that they'll just feel seen um, and that someone is sort of empath- empathizing with, um, with their circumstances. I think the other thing that I would hope to get out of it on a practical level is that people um, in industry, uh, in government and other places that are tasked with promoting innovation uh, we'll take a second look at independent inventors. I mentioned this analogy, right, is, is a thousand flowers bloom. It's not enough just to have your corporate lab or your government lab. Um, you've also, I would argue you also need to look around and see who's inventing things, whether that's in the university lab or it's an independent inventor in some dining room somewhere or in a basement, um, and that our best chances to promote innovation of all kinds is not to put all our eggs in one basket, but To spend uh, investment in corporate R&D labs, in government, in independent inventors, in universities. And the more eclectic uh, and the the more seeds we plant in a lot of different places, the more flowers will bloom. So I hope that people will take seriously independent inventors as a source of of invention.
1: And Silicon Valley maybe holds a special place in your heart. but Silicon Valley and Elon Musk also had a big breakup, although Tesla and SpaceX still operate there. And Musk is now a Texan, Um, but he also went to the UPenn. So it could save Musk billions of dollars in taxes by moving, but what was your experience working in Northern California? And are you a Musk fan or not? And how does Elon Musk fare on your independent inventor scale? Great
0: question. So, I mentioned uh, that I'm a career changer. So, uh, you know, I graduated from high school in Santa Rosa, California, Cardinal Newman High School. Uh, It's about an hour's drive north of San Francisco uh, in Sonoma County. Uh, After doing my undergraduate degree at Notre Dame in Indiana, I came back and I worked in San Francisco as an IT consultant for Accenture. So this is a big global services firm. And, you know, I would get put on clients to help them build their uh, IT systems. So I was kind of a programmer, a database administrator. So I did that from 96 to 2002. And it was a really interesting time because you could kind of see uh, the beginning. Well, I mean, I guess there's a really continuous, long uh, history of innovation in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, which extends down to like Palo Alto and San Jose. Uh, down the peninsula. But there's always been this continuous spirit of innovation in that area, that part of the country. And, you know, for a while I was part of it. You know, I was, you know, I had clients, I worked for, uh, Agilent and Hewlett Packard and, uh, Pacific Bell, you know, some of these companies headquarters are in Cupertino and Santa Clara, right down there in the heart of, uh, Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, so I had a good experience as a software developer and, and database administrator, and I would hear about startups. Of course, there was a huge internet boom in the late '90s and early 2000s that I witnessed firsthand, uh, and uh, and all of that. I, I have to say, I wasn't particularly aware of Elon Musk and PayPal, and uh, and then later Tesla. You know, I ended up moving away from the Bay Area in 2003 to start graduate school at UPenn. Um, Musk was in the dissertation, and I uphold him as an example of an independent inventor. Um, But I ended up uh, writing him out of the book. I decided not to include his story because I kind of felt like he had gotten a little too big. Uh, And this is one of the things that happens with independence, right? Like, so, you know, Edison starts out independent, but then he gets big, right? He becomes General Electric, and they become a corporate R&D lab. You know, Google starts as two Stanford students. It's uh, Paige and Bryn. Uh, and they get huge right now. Google's massive. Facebook starts as Zuckerberg in a dorm and it gets huge. And now it has a huge corporate R&D presence. So I, I kind of felt by the time the book came out that. Um, Musk was almost too big <laughs> to include. Right. Like so. Um, so, yeah, I uh, he's an interesting case study and I've definitely kept my eye on, on him a little bit. So uh, I, I guess you can be the judge whether or not he belonged in the book or not.
1: Yeah. Well, what about space um, and aerospace, likewise? Um, is space the next frontier for independent inventors to shine? Um, or is there another industry that's in dire need of independent inventors today? What do you think about all of that?
0: You know, space is uh, interesting. Um, and there's a, it's really becoming opened up to all kinds of different um, players. Um, you know, in the US, space used to be pretty much exclusively, uh, the U S government and the military and NASA. Uh, but there's been a real opening up of space to more contractors. So you think about SpaceX, there's a whole, um, uh, private and commercial uh, space tourism industry, right? So if you think about, uh, uh Bezos's company, blue is a blue horizon, blue origin. I can't remember. Um, and, that's right. And then, um, uh, the, uh, Virgin galactic, right? So we've seen a lot of these companies, And I think this is, in part, um, part of that argument, which is um, when government opens itself up to the ideas from a lot of sources, you can get new different kinds of ideas and innovation. So uh, NASA was really, among federal agencies, some of the first to embrace this idea of crowdsourcing, um, uh, invention competitions. So I mentioned um, Peter Homer the, the glove inventor, right. That was a NASA sponsored competition where they were actively using these inducement prizes to draw out independent inventors and non-traditional uh, sources of invention. So, you know, I think space, uh, will continue to be a rich area for independent inventors. Um, and, and we see this, especially if, you know, um, there's a lot of industry around, if you've got space tourism, then, um, there's companies that like sell space on these spacecraft for like scientific experiments, right? You don't have to go through NASA. Like now you can, you know, if you're a scientist that wants to put an experiment into space, you don't have to go through NASA. You can just pay for it right on Virgin Galactic or or SpaceX or or one of these other missions. So um, I think there's a real interesting commercial opportunities there for inventors. Um, And I'll have to think about your question about other sectors, but I think I would just in general say, you know, Um, there's people with good ideas everywhere in every sector. One of the things I found in my book is that independent inventors are working in every sector, agriculture, consumer products, transportation, aerospace, military, electricity, on and on and on. So I think uh, if companies look, if government agencies look, they'll find ideas uh, in the garages and in the basements uh, if they look for them. Are there any other closing thoughts
1: that you'd like to leave our audience of New Books Network with?
0: You know, I just uh, want to thank folks who are interested. And I want to thank you, Nathan, for uh, a great interview. I was really uh, challenged and, and, by, and, and uh, you made me think with a lot of your provocative questions. So I appreciate the opportunity to tell folks about my research. Thank you for having me today. And I hope everyone will check out uh, the book, uh, American Independent Inventors in an Era of Corporate R&D uh, with MIT Press.
1: Well, those have been some great thoughts. Uh, again, this, is, this has been an interview with New Books Network and the author, Dr. Eric S. Hintz. And to wrap things up, and on behalf of the fine folks at New Books Network, thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to the podcast on the history of science and technology. This is your host, Nathan Moore, signing out.